Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Shani Tarragon, and today we're going to continue to explore the laws of Tzarat as introduced in Parshiyot, Tazriah, and Mitzorah. And although we read the Psukim inside yesterday, today we're going to discuss what is the nature of Tzarat. Perhaps one of the most difficult topics that are addressed in Sefer Vayikra, we find that this skin disorder does not just render one impure, but rather mandates that one is going to be placed in confinement and ultimately isolation outside of the Machaneh of Am Yisrael. Today we'll explore some of the classical parshanot together with an understanding of the text and the context in order to properly extrapolate some of the messages that we're meant to learn, not only from what Tzarat is, but how the laws of Tzarat are told and commanded to us. The parsha opened with the laws of a Yoledet, the impurity of a woman at childbirth, but we do not find the exhaustive detail as we find by the condition of tzara'at. According to the Torah's description, this may strike the skin, the scalp, or the beard. It may occur in the aftermath of a lesion, shrin, or as we learn, mechvat esh, within the process of a healing burn. It may afflict garments of wool or linen. It may even strike the stones, the mortar, the plaster of a house. And in all of these cases, it is the kohen, the priest who must examine the infection and diagnose it. From the time that we're young, we often identify tzarat with leprosy due to the Torah's association with some type of whitening of the afflicted skin. But other than that, no other features of a typical leprous condition are really indicated in the psukim. The loss of sensation, paralysis, deformity that occur as medical chronic leprosy progresses are not found in the Torah's description of the illness, and therefore, such an association is clearly unwarranted. Additionally, no clinical case of leprosy has been found to infect articles of wool or linen or contaminate the walls of a house as we find in Parshat Tazriah and then again in Parshat Mitzorah. So we must conclude that the traditional linkage of tzarat with leprosy that renders this unusual sickness as a natural bacterial infection is quite untenable when it comes to understanding the parshiot that we're going to be involved in now. What is striking about tzarat is that opposed to the physiological conditions of birth and later on various emissions that come from the male or female bodies, we do not find a cause of tzarat. Seemingly, it strikes suddenly Without warning, sometimes the Kohen is able to immediately identify the symptoms and declare the afflicted individual as tamay or ritually unfit right on the spot. But more often than not, a seven-day incubation period or isolation is required in order to make a definitive diagnosis. Sometimes a second set of seven days is needed if the first quarantine fails to provide the conclusive results. In all cases, the waiting period is characterized by isolation from others as the potential mitzorah, his garment, his house, awaits the diagnosis and ultimately the judgment of the Kohen. So if there isn't a medical explanation for tzarat, then what is the reason behind tumat tzarat? The Ramban in his commentary on tzarat associated with garments explains that it is not at all a natural occurrence and does not typically occur in the world and therefore no rational explanation for this condition or a straightforward chain of medical cause and effect could account for it. The Rambam, Maimonides, also points out that the features of this malady are multifaceted 
and may include, as we learned last time, the appearance of white blotches on the skin, white hairs that have sprouted on raw skin, lesions, burns that have become infected, yellow hairs that have sprouted on the affected skin of a scalp or a beard. And therefore, it's difficult to isolate a common set of denominators that characterize the condition, especially once we find that it's also going to infect garments and houses as well. The Rambam states that Sarat is a shared name that includes many manners that do not resemble one another. For the whitening of human skin is called Sarat, the loss of some hair on the beard or the head is called Sarat, the discoloration of garments is also called Sarat, and therefore, as a shared name for different phenomena, it's even more difficult to identify what this malady is. The Shadal further explains that it cannot be some type of contagious illness because there are many other contagious illnesses for which the Torah does not prescribe any precautionary measures. And we find from different cases in Tanakh, such as the Tzarat of Naaman, the Sartzava, the general of the king of Aram, that it certainly is not contagious. Rav Hirsch discusses this as well and concludes that it is impossible to think that these chapters deal with sanitary or prophylactic measures against disease, or that we have to regard our Kohanim, regarding whom in any case, no trace of any reference to remedial measures can be found in the whole chapter as functioning in the health or medical care of the people. So we're going to return to some of the psukim that we learned together yesterday, attempting to find some linkage that unites all the various forms of the disorder of Tzarat, and perhaps this feature in the text may help us to understand what Tzarat is all about. The Torah indicated that whoever is stricken with Tzarat must be subjected to a period of isolation and confinement. During that duration, the afflicted individual does not participate in any social interaction, is barred from entering into the Mikdash, partaking of any korbanot, sacrificial foods, and basically is distant from the entire Machaneh. We return now to verses 45 and 46 in chapter 13. The Tsarua who suffers from Tsara'at shall have torn clothes and unkempt hair, and shall cover his face with his cloak. He shall call out, Tamei, Tamei, for as long as he is afflicted with his ailment, he shall be considered Tamei, and he shall dwell alone outside of the boundaries of the camp. The Tsarua must publicly proclaim his condition, not because it's contagious, but to ensure that others around him maintain their distance. And this isolation is not particular just to tzarat of the body. We're going to learn with regard to doubtful garments or suspected infected homes that they must also be placed under confinement or isolation for seven days. So the notion of isolation or confinement, whether a person, a garment, or a house, seems to be the dominant or common denominator between all cases of tzarat. But as we've already noted, this is not out of medical necessity to quarantine a harmful pathogen for the Kohen himself is going to be continuously involved throughout the process of purification. We've also noted various times that Tumat and Sahara have nothing to do with physical hygiene or medical health, but rather subtle spiritual states. So the fact that the Torah chooses to employ these terms of Tumat and Sahara is the strongest indication that Sarat must be understood as something other than a medical condition. Beyond the textual skill then of looking for the Milim and Chot of Tumat and vihiskir of confinement, we turn now to a different methodology, namely 
looking for the various cases of Tzaratz throughout Tanakh. In chapter 12 of Sefer Bamidbar, we'll find the case of Miriam, who after speaking hurtful words against Moshe, in consequence, God's presence departs from her, leaving the terrible affliction of Tzaratz in its wake. She is excluded, just as we find in our Persia, for a designated period of seven days, and is only healed through the powerful tefillah of Moshe Rabbeinu. Based on this, the Rambam weaves the different ideas of the parshiot of Mitzorah together and codifies in his Laws of Tzarat, chapter 16, that Tzarat is a general term that includes many distinct conditions that differ from one another. A whitening of human skin is called Tzarat, a loss of some scalp or beard here may be Tzarat, and a discoloration of garments or the house is Tzarat. This condition that afflicts garments or houses to which the Torah refers by this term is not a natural occurrence, but rather a miraculous sign that would transpire in ancient Israel in order to dissuade them from engaging in evil talk in Lashon Hara. Thus, if one is engaged in disparaging speech, then the walls of his house would become discolored. If he repented, then the walls would recover, but if he persisted, then the garments upon him would be afflicted. If he persisted, then his very skin would be stricken, and he would publicly be separated and isolated, so that he would be unable to engage in the chatter of the wicked, namely foolish words and evil speech. It is for this reason, explains the Rambam, that we have a positive commandment mentioned at the end of Sefer Dvarim, He shamer benega hatzarat lishmor ma'od v'la'asot kochol asher yoru atchem ha'kohanim halbiim kasher tivitem tishmru la'asot the Rambam teaches us that although not stated explicitly in our Persia, the underlying cause for tzarat is not a harmful microbe, but rather flawed or immoral behavior. To speak ill of someone else is to tear apart the social fabric that binds people together in relationships of trust. It's to drive a rift between oneself and others, and ultimately between oneself and God. The fitting consequence, then, is that the mitzvah is firstly isolated, and ultimately, if declared impure, is relocated to the outside of the machaneh, where he must dwell in complete isolation, far away from family, from friends, and definitely from the confines of the mikdash. Until he is ready to repent and recognize the danger that he posed through his speech, to personal, communal, and religious relationships. The Rambam, based on Chazal, tie together the maladies of the infected house, garment, and body, understanding that these are not disparate or unrelated strains of tzarat, but indicative of a progression of the disorder. If one does not recognize his own destructive conduct when he sees the tzarat of his house, then that will lead to the tzarat of his clothing and will serve as a warning of his spiritual failings to warn him to mend his ways and avert the harsher consequences of the tzarat of his skin. For this reason as well, it is the Kohen and not a doctor that diagnoses his disorder in order to ensure that the Kohen will provide religious instruction, spiritual guidance, and help one repairs one's relationship with others and with God. This is in fact the core cause that Chazal understand for tzarat as elaborated upon in many early midrashim and particularly in Talmud Bavli, Mesechet Erchin, Dapim, Tedvav through Tetzayin, 
explaining Lashon Hara, hurtful words, mean-spirited speech, as the cause for the malady of Tzarat. And then Midah, connected Midah, that same person who isolated himself from others through words, must suffer in a framework of isolation and aloneness. He must be forcibly removed from man's company, from God's company and presence, in order for him to internalize the effects of his evil speech. And even if we don't have the manifestations of Tzarat today, we can still learn the effects of Lashon Hara. Words can hurt and words can kill, and nothing is as detrimental to a healthy, loving human relationship as speaking badly against someone else. The second part of our shiur today is going to focus on a different means of trying to appreciate an understanding of the process of mitzvah, both at the malady itself, but also what he must undergo in the nature of his purification through the primary laws that govern the mitzvah. This final methodology is going to require us to be very sensitive to the terms and words employed by the psukim themselves to describe the period of isolation, the obligations of the mitzvah. So uh, we return again to the last two psukim that we learned yesterday, verses 45 and 46, reminding ourselves that once the skin infection has been identified as sarat, the person must leave the camp and live in solitude until the illness has fully healed. During his period, the mitzvah must, as we learned, rent his clothing, have his hair disheveled, shall cover up his upper lip, and shall call out, unclean, unclean. In short, the Torah charges the mitzvah with four basic obligations. Number one, to rent his garments. Number two, to leave his hair to grow. Number three, to cover his mouth. And fourth, to declare publicly his state of ritual impurity. The Torah then proceeds to an additional command which appears to be independent and not an integral component of the previous group of laws. And that was, number five, to live in isolation. What is the significance of these special laws relevant to the Mitzorah, and why does the Torah divide them into two distinct categories? Rav Yonatan Grossman points out that if one looks at the first three commandments, they remind us of other contexts of mourning. For example, after the death of Aaron's two sons, Moshe turns to Aaron and his remaining sons and instructs them, do not dishevel your hair, do not rend your clothes, lest you die and anger strikes the entire community. But instead, all of the house of Israel shall bewail the burning that God has wrought. Moshe specifically orders Aaron and his sons not to let their hair grow, not to tear their clothing in response to their recent loss. Were it not for this special command of Moshe Rabbeinu, they certainly would have observed these measures of mourning. The juxtaposition then of these laws of the mitzvah, constituting letting one's hair grow, tearing one's garments, certainly reminds us then of the mourning of Am Yisrael immediately following the deaths of Nadav and Avihu. In chapter 21 of Sefer Vayikra, we'll also learn about the prohibitions against a Kohen Gadol's observance of mourning for a relative, particularly the Isur, the prohibition for him to dishevel his hair and rend his garments. In Sefer Yechazkel, we also find classic signs of mourning, as Yechazkel is forbidden upon the sudden death of his wife to practice as a mourner. He is told to put on his turban, put sandals on his feet, and not to cover up his upper lip, teaching us that a mitzorah, in fact, does observe the practices of mourning. In addition, we now appreciate his proclamation of a state of impurity, just as someone who has recently buried a relative is ritually impure. Chazal state this explicitly when they describe a mitzorah as chashuv kamit. He is considered dead, as indicated by the laws of mourning that are practiced by the mitzorah. 
To a certain degree, he has died and must therefore observe the practices of mourners. If we look carefully at the physiological phenomena that take place on the Mitzorah skin, we can understand all the more so why the Kohen declares him impure. Stage number one was the infection's color. It has to be white in order to attain the status of Tzarat. Secondly, the infection's appearance. It must appear deeper than the person's skin. And in any case of uncertainty, the Kohen will isolate the person for seven days in order to examine him again later, in order to see whether the infection has expanded. Most Rishonim don't see these two criteria as independent one of the other. Rashi, for example, explains that once the infection is deeper than the skin of his body, that means that every white spot is deep, just as the sunlight appears deeper than the shade. In other words, the white discoloration affects the appearance of the infection and makes it appear lower than the skin. So what emerges is that it's not necessarily the appearance of the infection in surface, but rather the color white is the critical color which is going to qualify the infection. The whiteness of a person's skin will determine whether or not he has sarat, whether he's considered richly impure. What is so significant about this phenomenon of white skin? If we return to the very beginning of the parsha, we found that one of the instances of tzarat is the appearance of basar chai, as it's called, raw flesh or healthy flesh within an entire body composed of white. If the entire body is in fact white, then that's considered the healthy state of a person. However, if there's a contrast between the white and basar chai, literally live flesh, referring to undiscolored skin, then the Mitzorah recognizes that there's something wrong. He notices that life, the normal reddish color of his skin, which relates to blood to life, has left his skin and has been replaced by a dead white coloring. The skin of his body appears to him to be like the skin of a corpse, and he will consequently be declared ritually impure. He must therefore leave his place of residence, relocate outside of the camp, and understand that this period of isolation is, as we've seen by Chazal, an opportunity for repentance, for tshuva, an opportunity for rebirth, for him to recognize that God is punishing him for something, perhaps for even whitening the face of his fellow friend through evil slander, teaching us that whoever publicly whitens the face of another is considered as if he has shed blood, and thus his punishment directly relates to and is parallel to his crime. Now we understand the need for his isolation. That's the last stage that constitutes the very essence of his, so to speak, death. The Mitzorah must detach himself entirely from communal life. He lives in a static state, wherein the dynamic of the Shekhinah and of his fellow friends continues within the confines of the camp. And that is why the process of the Mitzorah's purification is going to highlight the stages of returning to life. The ceremony of his purification marks the transition from death to life, or the rebirth of the Mitzorah, who is going to gradually re-enter into the camp. Maybe that's why the Kohen has to purify the Mitzorah with crimson color, with bird's blood and colored water. The color red is the antithesis of the white discoloration that has surfaced on the Mitzorah's skin. If white signifies the whiteness of death, then the redness relates to blood or to life. The live bird which will fly away from this redness of the blood represents the individual returning to life, his rejoining with society and with Hashem. He shaves his hair as well as an expression of rebirth, symbolizing a brand new entrance into the world and an opportunity to come back to life properly.
The context, then, of the deaths of Nadav and Avihu make us, the readers, all the more sensitive to what mourning is all about, the consciousness of a detachment from life. And therefore, when we see the exact same laws that express the mourning of the Tzarat, we're supposed to be all the more sensitive to being cognizant, conscious, and sensitive to a certain loss of life that the Mitzorah has to internalize. Our sensitivity to the context of the narrative helps us appreciate even the technical laws contained within these rules of Tuma and Tahara. And if we are methodologically sensitive to the broader context of the relationship between narratives and the legal material, then we may also extrapolate a further message from the juxtaposition of the story of Nadav and Abihu with the laws of a Mitzorah. You may remember that when Nadav and Abihu sin by bringing the Ketoret on the eighth day, on the day of divine revelation, one of the possibilities was that they were attempting to offer incense to veil the divine revelation before Am Yisrael. We noted how Chazal are sensitive to the arrogance of Nadav and Avihu, indicative of such an act, feeling that only they were privy to the revelation of the Shekhinah, and they have to protect or provide a buffer for Am Yisrael. The very fact that God wanted to reveal himself to all of the people may instill within the proletariats of Am Yisrael a sense that maybe the Kohanim are not so significant after all. Maybe they really are not a religious elite. As they witness the deaths of Nadav and Avihu, perhaps they question the special position accorded to the Kohanim. And now arises the possibility that the nation might think that there is no special significance to the priests who work in the Mishkan, since God, in fact, had appeared to the entire nation and not to a specific group. In order to balance this, the Torah teaches us right after the deaths of our own sons, the extra strictures that the Mishkan demands from its appointees. The Kohanim are the ones who must instruct Am Yisrael. And therefore, amongst the first of the laws of Tuman Tahara appear these mandates of Tarat, wherein the Kohen is the one who diagnoses. The Kohen is the one that accompanies the entire purification process of the Mitzorah, his garment, his home. The patient becomes dependent on the priest and is meant to appreciate his special status. Furthermore, if we compare the various stories of Tzarat that appear throughout Tanakh, we find that each time Tzarat appears, it seems to be a particular punishment, not only for Lashon Hara, but all the more so the questioning of the status of God's special servants, the question of authority, whether it's in the case of Miriam, who speaks against her brother, the prophet Moshe, or Gehazi, who contracts Sarat after not respecting the prophet Elisha. And in the case of the king Uziah, he contracts Sarat after not showing proper respect to the authority of the Kohanim, who are imploring of him not to come and sacrifice Keturit. In all of these cases of contraction of Sarat, we find a certain lack of authority, particularly for the priests, and through the process, one becomes dependent on these authorities. The timing and the placing, then, of the laws of Tzarat juxtaposed to the deaths of Nadav and Avihu is all the more significant. For now we understand that on one hand, God revealed himself to all of Am Yisrael. The entire nation stood before God. However, these laws are here to teach us that the Kohanim are still servants who stand closer, who are responsible for the activity of the Mishkan, who are the ones who are meant to instruct Am Yisrael with regard to these mandates of Hashem. And therefore, one may not question their special status. One must respect the authority of the Kohanim. 
And if one does not, then one will be placed in a situation where one is forced to become dependent on the authority, instilling within them the proper respect for the servants of God. Tomorrow we shall continue with the psukim that describe the next phenomenon, tzarat habeged, the leprosy on clothing, seemingly an independent unit which is inserted in the middle of the discussion. We will then bez Hashem revisit the formulation and the structure of how these psukim are presented to us.